Welcome to Season 2, Episode 9 of Song Chronicles. Our special guest on today's episode is John Platt, Chairman and CEO of the world's largest music publishing company, Sony Music Publishing. Big John, as he is known, is one of the most powerful and influential music publishers of the past 25 years. He is a highly respected, often honored executive, recognized as playing a primary role behind hip hop's increased prominence in music publishing. He started his amazing historic journeys by working as a DJ in Denver, but he only considered a career in the music business after a life-changing conversation with Chuck D co-founder and the influential rap group Public Enemy. John went from DJing to working as a manager for several songwriters and producers, which led to a job at EMI's A&R department in 1995. He rose through the ranks, becoming president. Years later, he moved to another major music publishing company, Warner Chapel, where he was appointed chairman and CEO in 2015, before taking on his current job at Sony in 2019. During our talk, John discusses the guiding principles he's followed during his incredible career and how people like Vernon Jordan, businessman and civil rights activist, and Clarence Avant, who's being inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame this year, inspired him. Please enjoy this insightful conversation with John Platt. Hey, how are you? Thanks, John, for taking the time to do this. Happy to do it. For people who would be listening and may not know you, they probably know Sony and know that you have the biggest catalog of any publishing company with iconic people. My mother being one of them, Queen and the Beatles and Michael Jackson and the Rolling Stones and Jay-Z and Pharrell Williams. And the list is huge. What do you think it is that brings all these artists to Sony? Well. You know, so my history in music publishing began at EMI Music Publishing in 1995. You know, I worked there for 17 and a half years, just about. And then in 2012, once the sale of EMI happened, where it sold to a group of investors as well as Sony Corp, I left and went to Warner Chapel, um, where I went on to, you know, eventually lead Warner Chapel and then was asked to come and lead what was then Sony ATV. So when you look at Sony ATV, it's a collection of fantastic catalogs. You know, Sony ATV on its own had, had a really great history of attracting songwriters. So you have the EMI catalog, which now is wholly owned by Sony Corp. And then you look at the famous music catalog, you look at Lieber and Stoller, you look at the ATV catalog, you look at a lot of really great catalogs. And so it's a collection of some of the, the finest music catalogs to ever exist. And then you had what was previously Sony's music publishing's catalog as well. And so you combine all that together and that became Sony ATV. And that's why I felt that it was so important that we changed the name back to Sony Music Publishing mm -hmm. to remove any doubt or any confusion and to send a very clear message to not only to our songwriters, but to our business partners and the public as well, that we are one company. We are now one company united together 
So it's, it's a great history. It's a great legacy. And, you know, we put our songwriters first and we want to deliver for them every single day. It's pretty amazing. The collection of writers and songs and catalog that you have. Really, I want to talk about you, though, because your career has just been so extraordinary and you've managed to be a mover and a shaker no matter where you are and what you're doing. I love the idea of it's all based on relationships. So that was kind of a long-winded question that I'll just let you run with how you like. Sure. You know, listen, I care about songwriters. You know, I started as a DJ in Denver, Colorado, and and that led me to managing some songwriters and producers in Los Angeles, a production team. And I was able to get those producers a, a publishing deal with EMI Music Publishing. And that's how I got hired with EMI. A couple of years after that publishing deal, came together. So in 1995, I started with EMI. So my history in music has always been about the music. And then, you know, managing, it's about your clients, obviously. But but I've always been for the creators, I guess, is the best way to say it. And, you know, I don't just sign people. When I was doing A&R, now I'm speaking about my A&R career. When I was doing A&R, I didn't just sign people and then hope it works out. You know, when I came into the music publishing space, it was basically the way I saw it anyway, they would wait for a song to become a hit and then they would go and try to do a publishing deal with the songwriters of said hit. And that's what we did. And very quickly, I got bored with that. I kind of equated it to like getting the answers to the test before the test. And I just felt what would happen if we, you know, signed songwriters we truly believed in and really work with them to become successful and then still do the other part as well right? Because it is a business. And that's what I put my attention towards. Now, I could have failed miserably, but I didn't. And I started signing songwriters that didn't have any songs out and putting them in the studio and putting them with other songwriters to collaborate. And we really started to build So It really started to turn into something really special after about a year or two. So that's how I taught myself, you know, how I wanted to approach this business. And I've never... Um, fell back from that focus. And so it's always about the songwriter. It's always about how we can help grow a songwriter's career and help them to achieve everything they want to achieve. And that's what we do, whether I was at EMI, whether I was at Warner Chapel, or whether I was at Sony ATV or Sony Music Publishing. It's all the same for me. It's all about making sure our songwriters are supported. I often tell my teams, if the only thing you ever do for a songwriter is everything you tell them you're going to do for them, when you sign them to the company, you win. Because most don't. That's beautiful. Yeah. So, yeah, all of this that you're doing here is really creating artists out of the ingredients. You're not waiting for them to come to you fully formed. You're seeing the potential and nurturing and, and facilitating what they have to offer. Yeah, I wanted to talk about New York State of Mind because that was a case of that, of having ideas and bringing things together. I'm very grateful for that moment and, and what it still has become and, and how the song still resonates to this day. And I love people's reaction to it still. But that song came together and I was in New York and I tried to go to the artists that I work with when they go on tour. I try to go to their first show. Um, to show support. And, and I just love going to shows. So anyway, I was in New York that weekend because Beyonce was starting her tour and it was at Madison Square Garden. So that's the only reason why I was in town was to go to her concert. Her show was on a Sunday night. It was actually Father's Day. And so um, what happened was a couple of weeks before I was in New York and I saw two songwriters that were signed to EMI 
named Angela Hunt and Janae Sewell. And they had, they've had some success before in their career, you know what I mean? And so I saw them in the EMI offices and, and Janae, I signed Angela, I did not, but I knew them both well. And so they said, we want to get together with you. And I said, you know, I'm, I'll be back in town in a couple of weeks and I'm actually staying over a weekend. We should get together because I'm usually bored in New York when I'm on the weekends because everyone is no one around. They leave the city and you're kind of on your own. And so uh, they said, oh, we'll, we'll barbecue for you. You can come over to our house um, for we'll do a barbecue. So I came back to New York. They did the barbecue. I went over the house and it started to rain outside and it was just us. And so we went indoors and um, I said, I want to hear some music. And they're like, oh, OK, cool. So we went downstairs into Janae's home studio and they played me about four or five songs. And then they play this R&B song. And I didn't know the titles of any of the songs. Um, they were just good songs. And so they played this R&B song and I'm listening to it. And I'm like, wow, something's really special about this song. But also something's not working a little bit. You know what I mean? And so um, so they played more songs. And I say, hey, can you go back to that New York record? And, and so they play it again. And I'm listening to it. And I, I can't figure it out. I'm like, something is really special about this song. But then something keeps throwing me off. And then I, I think they played it for me three times, maybe, at, at that point. And I started to realize when the verses came, I would tune out. You know what I mean? I couldn't stay focused. Mm-hmm. When the hook came, I would get excited again. And so I asked him to play it another time, and I only focused on the chorus now because I knew the chorus was a hit. And so I started to really focus on it, and I remember having my head down, listening to every word that they were saying. Every word of the chorus began to resonate with me. And I said, this isn't an R&B song. This is a rap song. And I said, this is a Jay-Z record. And the song went off, and you know, I said to them, I need this song. Um, I got an idea for that song. And they were like, what? What's the idea? Now, Angela and Janae, you, you would have to know them to understand this. They are, let's just say they're not for any games. You know what I mean? They're very serious um, and they don't play around. And so I said, yeah, I need that song, but we need to take your verses off the song. And they look at me like, take the verses off the song. Like, you know, like, what are you talking about? And I said, yeah, this is, this is a rap record. And I hear this for Jay-Z. They're like, Jay-Z? Jay-Z, like, almost like I was crazy. I said, I said, play it again. So they play it again. And on one listen, they just start, everyone just started to look at each other like, oh my God, this <laughs> absolutely could be that. So anyway, that was on Saturday. And I said, send me, you know, five or six songs or whatever. So that night they didn't send them. And so um, when I'm at my hotel, they didn't send the songs. And so I'm like, oh man, they didn't even send the songs. And, you know, as a creative executive, you're, working on a lot of things at, at times. And so, you know, I, I probably moved on to the next thing. And if they send it, they send it. If they don't, maybe I chase them for it. You know what I mean? And so, uh, mm-hmm. and that, that whole night they didn't send it. The next morning I wake up and I open my computer and the emails start coming through and it was the songs from them. I was like, oh, they sent them. And I'm, I'm just looking for the New York record. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so, uh, and it finally comes through and the title was NY Rough, um, like a rough version. Mm-hmm. I listened to it on my computer like probably 20 times. And I'm like, every time I'm like, the picture's becoming clearer and clearer to me what this song is. And I type an email to Jay. By the way, I told him to send me the song without the verses on it. They sent it to me with the verses on it, right? So it's an R&B song. It's a two-minute R&B demo that they sent me. And I'm like, all right, that's all I have. I got to deal with it. And so I, I send an email to Jay. And in the email, I said, hey, check this song out. I think it could be big for you disregard the verses and I emailed it to him 
less than 10 minutes later, he emails me back and he says, yo, send, send it immediately. Happy Father's Day. And so I'm looking at, thing. I'm like, what are you talking about? I sent it already. And I'm thinking he looking at it on his device and he, I think Blackberry at the time we were using. And so uh, I figured he didn't realize it was attached in the email. Mm -hmm. I typed back to him. I sent it already. Um, it was attached in the email. And then I went to the gym um, after I sent that email. And I put all my stuff in my safe. And I came back from the gym and had all these emails from Jay. I'm like, why is Jay emailing me so much? Like, what is, what's going on? Because I, I sent the song. I've told you. And I, I moved on. Like, so creatively, I've, like, kind of moved on to the next thing. And I don't, I don't, to the point, I don't even know why he's emailing me all these emails. And he was like, no, send the Pro Tools. I'm cutting it tomorrow. And I'm like, the Pro Tools? I was like, oh, he's talking about the song. And then each email was more amplified and got, got me more pumped up. And so that night I go to the show, Beyonce show, and Jay's in the dress room and me and Jay are just in there talking before the show. And he's saying how I sent him a really great song. He said, you sent me a mean one. And he told me he wrote it already, that he, that he knows the song already. I said, that's impossible. Like you... It's impossible. Like it's it's verses on there already. You know what I mean? Like how did you write? He said, "No, there was a little piece of music at the end, and I wrote the entire song." That said, and this little piece of music was probably two seconds that was left open, and he conceived the entire song off of that two or three second thing that he kept playing over and over again of the music. And then obviously it was a singing chorus, and you know there was some talk about that. And and at that point, I said, "I think Alicia Keys would be good on this," and he got it in two seconds. And he ran with it and reached out to her and the song came together. And as they say, the rest is history. You know, but the beauty of that whole song, it was Jay's first number one song as a solo artist of his artist, because he had had number one records where he featured on other people's songs. But it was the first Jay-Z song to go number one on the Hot 100. And I take personal pride in that one that, you know, and, and Jay and I are, at this point are close. You know what I mean? I signed Jay in probably 1996. And this is in 2009, you know, so we're really close at this point. It was great to see like, you know, a songwriter that I signed that long ago, then anyway, <laughs> much longer now, but have a, his first number one record. That was exciting. That was an exciting moment for him. But what was more exciting was that as his publisher, I was able to deliver that song to him as a publisher. I did my job as a publisher, pitching a song that Janae and Angela and, and Al Shucks, who wasn't our writer, did you know by the way months before they did that song it wasn't just a brand new song that song was on their hard drive for months and months and months so i was lucky to hear it that day and as a publisher i delivered jay-z you know the bones of a number one song because alicia did her thing the hook is exactly the same as it was you know what i mean with maybe one word change exactly the same song exactly the same way the girl sang it the track is exactly the same track as that demo and jay wrote some of the most incredible verses I mean, listen, it's, it's his career song now. So he wrote timeless verses. Everyone knew what it was. And, and the reality is I was just happy to play a small role on what some great songwriters created, what a great producer created, and what two of the greatest artists that we've seen in, in this generation were able to bring to life. I don't know. It's kind of a long story, but it, it is exciting. And, and I hold it near and dear. I love hearing all the detail of how it came together. Can you talk a little bit about another song, Waterfalls? Yeah. So with Waterfalls, 
1995, I started EMI. And the TLC Crazy Sexy Cool album was released probably just prior to my start at EMI. And I know the single Creep was out already. You know, I was a huge fan of Creep, but actually a huge fan of TLC. And I'm listening to the song, the album, and this song, Waterfalls. Come on, I was like, wow, that's a really good song. That is a really good song. And I'm listening and listening to the album, and I just keep going back to this song, Waterfalls. And so two weeks after I started at EMI, I took a trip. My first trip for the company was to go to Atlanta, Georgia. And before I went to Atlanta, I called a friend of mine who was a songwriter in Los Angeles. Her name was Erica Nuri. And at that time, a lot of the deals that were being signed in EMI, in particular, were, were with producers, right? And and I was like, okay, this is great. We have all these producers, but it'd be great if I had some lyric writers to write to these tracks, basically. And so I called Erica and I said to her, I said, do you know any lyric songwriters? Because I'm, I'm looking for some in this new job at EMI. And I'm like a week or two into this job. And she's like, oh, she says, let me think about it. She says, you know, I know a couple of people there in Atlanta. And I said, oh, who are they? I said, I'm actually going to Atlanta. She says, a guy named Marquez and a guy named Brandon. And they write with organized noise. And I'm like, okay, cool. I would, I would love to meet them. Have they done anything? She said, yeah, they wrote this song on TLC's album called Waterfalls. And, you know, she might have mentioned another. So I said, Waterfalls? I said, that's my favorite song on the album. Now, the song Waterfalls is not a single at this time. It's just an album track. And, and I said, well, I love that song. Can you connect me with them? And so she gives me their number or one of their numbers or whatever. And, and, and so I go to Atlanta and it's a guy named Marquez Etheridge. And I'm, I'm like chasing him down. I talked to him on the phone once and, you know, it was a nice enough conversation. And then I say, hey, I'm in town. I want to get together. And the guy would not get together with me at all. And then I call him. He's like almost like dodging me now. And so I finally connect with him a few days later. And he says, I'm at the barbershop. You can come and meet me here. And so I go to, to this barbershop and I meet him and we connect. And I'm, I'm telling him all about what I want. Yeah, I want to sign you in my music publishing. I think you're an amazing songwriter. And he gave me his lawyer's information. He had just got a lawyer, gave me a lawyer's, lawyer's information. And I think the night before I left town, we all went to a dinner. Me, Marquez, Brandon, and his lawyer, Jonathan Leonard. And... Yeah, so we went to the dinner and it was great. And, and then it, we got into the process of trying to get a publishing deal done for Marquez and Brandon. Um, they had another song on the album called Something Wicked This Way Comes. I think that's what it's called. And Marquez and Brandon wrote that song together. And, and Marquez was the only writer on Waterfalls from their writing team. And so it took us months and months and months to get the deal done because Marquez was a bit nervous. He didn't know, you know, really understand what a publishing deal was. We needed the blessing of Rico Way from Organized Noise to do the deal. And in the middle of all that, Waterfalls comes out as a single and explodes. I mean, explodes. And so obviously now everyone wants to sign Marquez now. But it took some months, but we actually did get it done. And, you know, so it was the first, you know, the song was already written, actually already even released by the time that I met Marquez. Not, not as a single, though. But there was a bit of great pride in that of because that was just my DJ instincts kicking in. You know, as a DJ, I would always play the hits, obviously. But when an album was released, I would always challenge myself to find another song on the album to play that wasn't the single. I didn't know at the time that was called breaking records, basically. I didn't know that was the terminology for it. But in my mind, Waterfalls was the record I would play if I were still DJing at that time. And so I identified that song, was able to sign it and be able to see it come out and, and do what it did in the world. 
it it was just my DJ instincts trying to find another song on the album that I like as much as or better than the single or what would be the next hit. And so it was it was it was a great amount of pride, but I was really, really happy for Marquez because he hands down is one of the nicest people you will ever meet in your life. And one of the most grounded people. I mean, the guy had the number one song in the world and kept his job at a hotel. He worked at a hotel in Atlanta and he would not quit that job. And he literally has the number one song in the world. He's working at a hotel in Atlanta. That's how grounded this guy is. And one of the nicest people in the world, but a really great thing to be a part of. I love that. That's fantastic. So can you talk about Clarence Avant? Yeah, Clarence Avant? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'll try to without getting emotional. He's probably one of the greatest men to walk to earth in my eyes. And in a lot of, I, I, I want to say in a lot of Black people's eyes, but I actually think in a lot of people's eyes that, that Clarence is, is, you know, what he's done for so many, he's done so much for so many people, myself included. And, you know, for a guy who, with a ninth grade education, to achieve all that he's achieved in his life, but then also help others achieve and point them in the right direction. You know, sometimes it's him making a phone call to an executive, you know, a company to help get a situation sorted out. Sometimes it's connecting dots. Um, Sometimes it's tough love. But I've never met anyone in my life as giving as Clarence. And and there's a lot of people who, who give back and there's a lot of people who reach back. Let me be clear. But you'd be hard pressed to find someone who's done so much to the level of effectiveness that Clarence brings to the table of moving the needle forward and particularly for black people. Um, he's a very powerful figure in my life. You know, I have twin sons, seven-year-old twins and twin boys. And the first one I named Clarence, that's the impact that, that he has on my life. You know what I mean? And it's how he will stay with me forever. And it's just a, it's just a very important figure, very, very important person. For people who don't know, he managed Sarah Vaughn and Louis Armstrong. And, you know, he must have really stood up for his artists in a time when it was really easy to get screwed if you were a jazz artist. Yeah. Yeah. You know, he worked as an agent um, for, for a while. But, you know, what a lot of people don't realize is that, you know, Clarence had a label called Sex Records. It was his label. Bill Withers was on his label for the majority of his albums. All of those Bill Withers hits that we've come to know that have become standards, you know, Lean On Me, Grandma's Hands, um, those are standards now. You know, Clarence was a big part of all of that. Like he gave Bill Withers his shot. You know, he gave Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis their producer opportunity. He helped set up LA and Babyface in their songwriting producer business. You know what I mean? He's helped me as an executive. And I'm now the highest ranking black executive in the entire music industry, maybe even the entertainment industry. And, you know, he helped Puffy get his situation with Arista. Like, you know what I mean? It goes on and on and on of, of someone just giving back. He helped Gerald Busby, who actually is the one who introduced me to Clarence formally years ago. And, you know, when he was running Motown, it's just like, it's actually really easy to help people. But, but a lot of people don't take the time to do that. Or maybe they feel they don't have the time to do that. Maybe they're so busy doing their own thing. You never know. Everything is different with each person. But that alone, all of that I just ran down to you is, is quite impressive that we all have this lineage to, to this great man. It, it, it is, it, you do get emotional speaking about it at times because our, our lives are better because of Clarence Avon. When people are generous with their time, it's a sign of security. And that's a wonderful legacy. 
And also Vernon Jordan, who was, you know, a, a business executive, but also a civil rights activist. You mentioned Atlanta earlier. He grew up in Atlanta. Right. He had an impact on you in some way when you were growing up? Yeah, he did. Never met the man in my life before. He's, he's since passed away. But I've never met him in my life before. But his influence on me as a child and then as a young adult, then being in business myself, he had a heavy influence on me. You know, growing up, he was one of, if not the only successful Black person I saw, that I saw. And, you know, I just remember the name Vernon Jordan, Vernon Jordan, Vernon Jordan. And it's this Black man. Didn't even really knew what he did at the time as a kid, but I knew he was something. I knew he was somebody and people respected him. And I, I honestly cannot recall any other person when I was growing up that was viewed the way Vernon Jordan was. And it also goes to, you know, I don't want to go straight too far from your question, but it, it, it also gives you a level of the importance of people seeing people that look like them, that they can relate to. It's important for you to see female leadership. It's important for me to see leadership in people of color. You know what I mean? It's important, you know, and diversity comes in so many different forms. I think when people hear diversity, they think it's just one thing. And it may be you view it that way because of who's speaking to you about it. So you may think that they are only speaking about their plight. And in reality, a lot of people are speaking about it, about diversity in all forms of diversity, whether it's gay, whether it's person of color, whether it's female, you know, whatever that is, mixed with everything else that's here now, right? It, it, it's, it's truly important that that comes together because looking at just, again, I never met Vernon Jordan as a kid. I didn't even know what he really did, but that was a very important piece of my life. And it's part of the reason where I am where I am today. Right. And, and so a role model without him ever knowing he was a role model to me, you know, years ago when I was at EMI, there was a Newsweek magazine that came out and on the cover of the Newsweek magazine was it was Dick Parsons, um, Ken Chenault, who was running American Express at the time, and Stan O'Neill, who was doing, uh, I believe, Morgan Stanley and, and Dick Parsons was Time Warner. I looked at that magazine. I see these three powerful black executives and. Between Vernon Jordan and that magazine cover, I would say those are the bookends of making me want to achieve more. And, you know, because since Vernon Jordan, I hadn't seen it until that magazine cover in my eyes. But when I saw the magazine cover, I see, you know, two guys in finance really running the world of finance at that time. Mm -hmm. And Dick Parsons, head of a media company. And it made me want, I even said, I want to be that. Like, I want that. And they were powerful. They just looked powerful. And I was like, I want that. And at that moment, probably, I, I began to really focus of like, this is just, I'm just on the journey right now. But by no, because I was very successful at that time, or becoming successful, I should say. But it, it, it came at the right time. and let me know there was so much more to achieve, so much more to achieve. And I, I started to put my entire focus into that, achieving more. Yeah. And in turn, I'm sure there are people coming up looking at you as that for them. Yeah. You know, Louise, there's a friend of mine named Jay Brown and he runs Rock Nation, Jay-Z's company. He's actually a part owner in Rock Nation um, with Jay-Z and, and my friend Tata. So they own that together. But Jay is one of my closest dear friends. He actually is the one who introduced me to Jay-Z. And often in our conversations, I say to Jay, it's important to remember that we are now the people we looked up to. Mm -hmm. 
it was just one day I just had this revelation. I was like, wow. Cause you know, people come up to me and say, Oh, you inspired me to do this. Or you told me this years ago, and this is what's happening for me now. And you know, you may not even remember the conversation, but they do. And, you know, it made me realize that, you know, there are kids or people in this business or not in this business that we have the opportunity to inspire, mm-hmm. which, as I told you about Vernon Jordan, as I told you about, you know, Dick Parsons, Ken Chanel and Stan O'Neill, these are people that inspired me. Never met me. Never met me. I met Dick Parsons once in passing. So essentially, we've never met any of these people who, as I told you, were the bookends of, of my journey. And we are that for somebody else. And I'm, I'm very aware of it. I'm very aware of it. And I take it very serious. The amount of belief soon becomes the water you're swimming in. At first, it seems a struggle to believe because of what you see around. And then one thing that is just a pillar of, I can do this, becomes the new normal, becomes the new water you swim in where you're in it rather than it's out there somewhere. Yeah. i never looked at it as, you know, I went to a music conference um, probably in started in my 95. So I probably went to a music conference in 92 or 93 in Washington, DC. And, and a very young Sean Puffy Combs was speaking at the conference. And I remember him, he talked about a lot of things, but I, what I remember him saying then is he said, you have to be willing to not be afraid to close your eyes and dream and then open your eyes and see it. Beautiful. It was such a powerful Quote, I just, you know, I just take things from people. I was like, well, that's, that, that works. That makes a lot of sense. And, um, and it is true. You know what I mean? I think when you talk to people who've achieved any level of success and you'll say, how do you do it? They'll someone say, how do I do it? And you tell them, well, you know, you gotta, you know, you, you'll tell them you gotta stick to it. You gotta be, you know, you gotta push through failure. You gotta do all these things. And, and to, to the person listening, it, it, it may sound like cliche or kind of like everyday stuff, but it is true. It is true. And, you know, I've worked with a lot of successful people, a lot of successful people, like some, some of them have, you know, become iconic. Um, they weren't iconic when we started working together, but they're iconic now. And they do different things. All of them do different things, different styles of music. Some are songwriters, some are artists, some are, you know, different things. But the one thing that they all have in common is how hard they work. And I noticed that every, for, for years, every time I would go meet artists or whatever, they would be like in work mode when I would go to meet them. And I'm always on. And so I think we connect on that level, first of all. But it also shows me, what it showed me the most is even the best work hard because they're the best at what they do. There's nobody better at what some of these people do, but they work so incredibly hard. So how could I work less? Mm -hmm. Can you talk about teams a little bit? Because I know, you know, for every great worker and brilliant person, there's a cultivated team of people you trust that you can call on that stick around and the flow of work goes better. How does that get put together? Well, I didn't really learn that until I went to Warner, to be honest with you. And I I went in with a focus on being a team player, you know, because Quite frankly, when you're an A&R person, at least back then, you viewed yourself on an island and on your own and, you know, you're doing your own thing. And if you really became successful at it, which I was lucky to, then you, then you really did your own thing. And so, um, and that's fine if you're just going to be an A&R person. But, you know, EMI, I, I had came into leadership positions, you know, that was the head of A&R, then president of A&R for the U.S. And so I had a team. However, my mentality 
but still as an A&R man, where I got to do it. I got to get it done. And I'm, I'm very driven. I'm very hard on myself as well. And so, you know, when I left EMI, I took three months off before I started at Warner. And I really gave a lot of thought of like, it was the first time, I mean, EMI was my first job in the music business. So, you know, I'm going into a new role. So I'm not the guy that's jumped from company to company. And one could argue I'm right back at EMI now because it's, it's Sony, right? And so I've really essentially only really had two jobs. But going to Warner, I gave a lot of thought of like, what do I want to do different? What do I want to be better at going into this new role? You have an opportunity to do it. So I gave some thought about my EMI journey, which was an amazing journey. And I thought about my leadership part of that journey. And I was just honest with myself. And I was like, you know, I was a guy where if I was working with you, Louise, and let's say you're trying to get whatever it is done and you couldn't get it done, I would just get it done. You know what I mean? And, and I, but I did that over and over and over again. And in this three months off in the summers, I'm thinking, I was like, that probably wasn't good leadership doing that. Um, and so I, I said, I want to do, I want to really focus on leadership going in. And, and also I had worked with, with EMI had worked a lot of, well, the entire team already as a colleague, and now I'm their boss. And that's just a lot of weirdness in that in and of itself, right? Um, yeah. And, and so going into Warner, I'm working with a whole new fresh team. Mm-hmm. And so I went in with a focus on focusing on leadership, focusing on being collaborative, and focusing on delegating. That was my focus. And I went in, and and and, and that's really what put me on the path to where I'm even sitting here having this conversation with you today as the chairman and CEO of Sony Music Publishing. Because, you know, Warner wasn't, let's just say they weren't the best publishing company in the world at that time. They were obviously a major and very respectable company, but we were able to really make it successful as a team. And I was able to learn how more effective you can be when you have a team and the whole team is moving in the same direction. And, and now that, and that was almost before I became CEO at Warner. Then when you become CEO, you soon realize you can't do it all. Even if you could, you can't. And you, you have to delegate. You have to have a very important, you know, strong team around you. But I was able to learn all of that at Warner and prepared me for this role at Sony. And so that. It's kind of the answer to that question. It's a beautiful thing that you said is that you can't do it all. You know, the more successful you get, the more you need to work with other people and be going in the same direction, which is a crucial part of that whole thing. You know, inspiring other people to go in the same direction is part of the job description. Well, you know, there's another part to that as well, where you said you can't do it all. My view on that, because there are, let's just be honest, there are some people and I would probably include myself in some of that, they could do a lot of it. You know what I'm saying? I don't know about all, yeah. but they could do a lot of it. But, you know, I once said to someone, they said, well, I could do it all. I said, but just because you can do it all doesn't mean you should do it all. And, you know, I think as a leader, we have to remember, you know, I, I'm speaking to leaders now, you know, we have to remember that we didn't get to where we are by ourselves. Um, and when I say that, I mean, someone had to give you an opportunity. Someone had to, you know, believe in your crazy dream, your crazy idea, your whatever it is that failed 10 times, but it's going to work the 11th time. You know what I mean? Someone gave you that chance. You know, I was inspired by Vernon Jordan and 
Dick Parsons, right? And that played a role in, into where I am in my life right now, right? It played a role in getting me to where I am in my life right now. We have to give others that opportunity as well. Mm-hmm. I truly believe that because most of the conversation I hear is telling younger people what they need to do to grow. And it's very little conversation at the leadership level for what leaders need to do to inspire younger people to grow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, one thing I heard that you mentioned earlier, we're offering deals and huge opportunities that were life-changing. Some of them dodged you and didn't call you back and didn't follow up with the email. And I'm laughing, thinking, musicians, how are we like that? That's one way leaders can inspire other people to grow. Listen, that's why songwriters are songwriters. That's why artists are artists. That's, you know, a songwriter's genius might not be in answering the email. You mean their genius is in writing the next song. And... As an, as an executive or a creative, as I like to call it myself, is that if it's that important to you, you keep chasing. Because most people stop chasing. They get offended or they feel the person doesn't want it, right? If I believe it's really special, I keep chasing. I was talking to one of our younger um, executives in Atlanta. His name is Jamin. And he was asking me how I signed an artist named Young Jeezy. And I gave him the story. But the quick version of it is when I reached out to sign that I said I wanted to work with Young Jeezy, I was told by his lawyer that he didn't want to do a deal. And I constantly reached out to the lawyer because I was such becoming a bigger and bigger and bigger fan of his work. And he kept telling me he didn't want to do a deal, but I was persistent about it to the point where Young Jeezy finally wanted to take a meeting with me and find out who this crazy person is who just won't take no for an answer. Long story short, I signed Young Jeezy and worked with him for many years. It was that important to me. And, you know, why do I have that level of persistence? I'm not a songwriter, first of all, right? I can help fix songs, but I'm not a songwriter. My, you know, focus is on what I do. And a songwriter's focus is on what they do. And writing that next song is what's important to that songwriter. And me trying to show that songwriter how if we work together, we can amplify that is what's important to me. But I need to make that important to us. And I have to be persistent in, in, in able to do that. And I think a lot of people throw in the towel on things that I've had numerous people, you know, where there's Harold Lilly not sending me the songs or whatever the case may be. And then, you know, we end up working together. And a couple of years later, he wins a Grammy award, right. For the best song in R and B. Like those are moments that I don't take lightly at all, but they're Jay-Z. I cold called Rockefeller, like the freaking salesman. When I, Jay-Z's first album came out, I called Rockefeller Records and, and I was just like, hey, my name is Big John. I want to do a publishing deal with Jay-Z. Who can I talk to? And they bounced me around from person to person to person. Like that was my pitch. That's ballsy. Yeah. And I finally get on the phone with Dame Dash, who was running Rockefeller Records at the time. I mean, he just started with a barrage of questions like, and, you know, Dame is really aggressive, too. Like he's, he's he knows his stuff. And so honestly, I didn't have all the answers. I was like, I'll call you back. You know what I mean? And I, I got off the phone. You know, he's really aggressive. And, and I got off the phone. I wasn't expecting that. You know, not long after that, I was in a club on Sunset called Billboard Live. Well, it used to be called Billboard Live. And it was some event. And it was early at the event. And like maybe 50 people there at the time. Hardly nobody there. And I see this guy just standing by himself. I was like, man, I look like that Jay-Z guy. And I get close. I say, it is that. It is Jay-Z. He's just standing there by himself. And, and you know, his first album was out. And it was big on the East Coast at the time. And it was starting to kind of like move around the rest of the U.S. He's just standing by. So, so I, I go up to him and I introduce myself to him. 
I said, hey, man, I'm, my name's Big John. I work at EMI. He's a publisher. I'm a big fan. I'm a big, big fan. Um, he's like, oh, thanks, man. And so um, we're talking for a couple of minutes. I was like, what's your next single? He's like, Can't Knock the Hustle, a song with Mary J. Blige. And so we talked about that for a minute. And honestly, I ran out of things to talk about. You know what I mean? He wasn't like super talkative, but he was very polite. And I, I literally ran out of things to talk about. And I was like, man, it's nice meeting you. And, and I walked away. And later that night at the event, now the event is, is going on. There's a lot of people at the event. And I, I, I just find my way upstairs. And I go upstairs and I see Jay-Z again with, with a crew of people. And he's laughing and joking. You know, he's having a great time. And I see my friend, Jay Brown, in the mix with them laughing and joking. And I get Jay Brown's attention. I say, you, you know him? He's like, yeah. I was like, yo, I want to sign him, man. I want to sign him, man. He's the best. He's the best. He's going to be the best. And so, you know, Jay Brown's like, come on, I'll introduce you to him. And Dame Dash, the guy who I spoke to on the phone at Rockefeller, is there as well. And Jay Brown took me over, introduced me to them. And, you know, weeks later, I signed Jay to, to EMI Music Publishing. But that introduction, like Jay Brown didn't have to do that. You know what I mean? I could have not asked him, do you know him? But it is an example to what you just spoke about, how, or what we spoke about, people don't get to where they are by themselves. Mm -hmm. Without that introduction, I probably don't sign Mm JC. You know what I mean? I probably don't sign him. And Empire State of Mind probably never exists. You know what I mean? He would have had a lot of other great songs that existed with or without me, right? But it it wouldn't be what it is right now that someone I've worked with over 20 years, you know what I mean? Over 20 years together still to this day. And if I go back, People always look at things or tend to look at things of where they are today and they don't go back to how it happened. Mm-hmm. And it kind of correlates with running a company. If you go back to how it happened, it was teamwork. Yeah. And then it became this great thing, great careers for both of us and a great relationship, even better. But you go back to that day in the club where I had a one on one conversation, us to ourselves doing it alone, we didn't get it done insert somebody else in there who helps connect the dots and all of a sudden it's probably one of the greatest relationships in music i don't know if i'm making sense of it to you but it totally makes sense to me it completely makes sense and then you know you can get all talking about the universe like who put that person there at the exact right time that we needed to fuse these two elements and make them work you know feels like you know divine intervention sometimes but it takes the seeing of the opportunity to move on it. And, and one of the most common things I find is people have a sense of pride. Mm-hmm. They think they got to do everything themselves. And they think if somebody is offering to help, that it somehow is either putting them in debt. You know, over time, I realized that giving and receiving is a two way street. People sometimes like to give better because it's the controlling position. And they feel like if they receive, that they're going to owe something to someone or someone wants something from them or they're less than and they can't do it themselves. And all of these are obstacles to just being part of the human race that that is meant to fuse together and create new things. So I, I love what you're saying and I follow you. Well, I think it depends on who you're asking for that help from, because, you know, let's just be real. There are some people you ask for help and you do owe them. You know what I'm saying? Uh, yeah, that is that is a business truth. You do owe them. And, and you know who those people are, so you tend to not want to ask them. You know, like I'm a person that with my dreams, right? Things I never told it, I never told one person that I wanted to be, you know, at that at that time, the CEO of EMI. 
a music publisher. I never told one person that. When I was at Warner, I never told one person that I wanted to lead a company. You know what I mean? I never told one person that I wanted to, like, this is my dream job. What I'm in right now is my dream job. Never told one person that. And the reason is because I felt that with my dreams, I feel that if I put them in the universe, someone will hear them that can stop it from happening. Mm -hmm. And so I just keep it to myself. And so it just happens when it happens. And then, you know, you're like, oh, wow, he did that. You know what I mean? Or that's what they're doing now or whatever the case may be. You know, there are certain people. I just want to acknowledge that there are certain times where, you know, you ask someone for help and then you do owe them and they make it known that you owe them. Right. Now, that that's an also a, an example of bad leadership on the other side. Yeah. You know what I mean? It has really very little to do with you, has more to do with them. Mm-hmm. And because going back to what you say, it's almost like the I'll flip it to what you said, which I think is equally relevant, is you should help people because you can help, mm-hmm. not because of what you can get in return from it. Mm-hmm. You know, I'll tell you one more story. Well, another story. Years ago, I'm in New York and I get a call from a friend of mine named G. Roberson. And G at the time was Kanye West's manager. This is very early in Kanye's career. First album, early, right? And G called me and he asked me, was I good friends with Usher's mother, right? Janetta Patton. I'm like, yes, that's my girl. I'm really good friends with her. Like, what's up? He goes, we're trying to get on Usher's tour, trying to get Kanye on Usher's tour. Can you call her and put in a good word for us? And I'm like, gee, I don't do tours. Like, I'm the publisher. Like, I have no idea what you're talking about, actually. I wouldn't, I wouldn't even know where to start having that conversation with her. He was like, well, you know, so he gives me some more information. And he says, you know, I just really would appreciate it if you could call her, you know, tell her we're good people. I'm like, all right, cool. So I call her. And we call her J-Pat. So I'm talking to J-Pat. And I, I bring up Kanye West. I said, hey, I work with this songwriter artist in Kanye West. It would be really cool if you guys could take him out on the tour with you. Now, this is Confessions Usher. This is the Confessions story, the biggest albums of Usher's career. Like, probably 20 million sold worldwide right now, right? And so I asked him, "Could you? he's going to be a big star, meaning Kanye. He's going to be a big star. And it would be great if you guys could take him out. And so she's like, we're going around and around about it. And, you know, she's not really into it. But I won't let it go. And I, I said, I really, I really need this favor. You know what I mean? And so she said to me, Big John, she called me Big John, as a lot of people do. She said, is he really that good? I said, he is that good and even better. And she's like, okay, I, I think I'm okay with it, but you need to speak to Usher. So I reach out to Usher and he calls me back later that night. And I give him the same story, basically. He's got Kanye West. He's going to be huge. It'd be great if you could take him out on the tour with you. And it's almost identical conversation. He's like, oh, I don't know, this, this, and this. And then Usher says to me, is he that good? Because I was passionate about it, passionate about Kanye. He said, is he that good? I said, he's that good, Usher. And he said to me, all right, I'll do it. And that's how Kanye got on the Confessions Tour. Now, I could have easily not made that phone call. I could have easily thought, I'm the publisher. That's not my role. There's no way I can make that happen. And by the way, I could have did all of that and it, it, there was a chance it wouldn't have happened, but that wasn't the case. I did it and it happened. And it was a very important part of Kanye's career at that time. Very important moment in his career for him to get on that tour. But what it taught me in hindsight 
I'm talking years ago, hindsight, that if your friends call you and ask for help, you help. You help. Do what you can. And it'll work out how it works out at that point. But, you know, I asked Jay Brown to introduce me to Jay-Z. He did. It worked out pretty good for all of us. He could have easily not done it. He could have easily gave me the fake introduction. He could have, it could have been a lot of things, mm-hmm. but it wasn't. And I think when people really, if they're honest with themselves, because a lot of people are not honest with themselves, especially when you become successful. The more successful you come, become, the less honest you start being with yourself. You know what I mean? But if you're honest with yourself and you start to really piece together the dots of, of how you have been able to achieve all that you've been able to achieve, you'll realize that you didn't do it all by yourself. Now, it wouldn't have happened without your talents as well. But there are certain moments where people are either inspiring you or help you, helping you connect a dot. Like, like you said, you said something about why was this person in this place on this day at this time to help make these things happen? You know, for me, my version of that was why was Chuck D in Denver for a concert that I was emceeing that day at that time? Why were we watching Ice Cube's soundcheck together? And why did he ask me the question, what am I going to do with my life? And I was like, I'm the best DJ in Denver. He was like, yeah, every time I come here, you're the best DJ in Denver. But unless you dream bigger, that's all you'll ever be. My music business dream started that next day from that conversation. It wasn't a dream until Chuck's conversation with me and inspiring me. He actually said to me, I think you should be in the music business. I think you have something to offer to it. Him saying that, that's all he said, but it was everything. And that was that. He's amazing. First of all, I could just listen to him read the yellow pages because he's got one of the greatest sound. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and he cares so much. He cares and is so talented. And I love that he said that to you then. And I love the way you collect. You seem to collect treasures, the things that people say to you that give you inspiration and strength. Like you collect them and keep them like reminders of these treasures, the phrases, the moments, the way they hit you. It's beautiful the way you collect them. And uh, man, that's an amazing thread that you're weaving there. You know, one of the things I'm thinking about listening to you, uh, uh, two things. One is how it really comes down to understanding no matter how big or iconic or intimidatingly talented somebody may be or on the rise, that when it comes down to it, people are people. Jay-Z's Jay-Z sitting there alone in that club. He's being polite. He has needs. Maybe he's shy. He's not a big conversationalist with some stranger. And, you know, in that moment, you respect all of that because some people do get blinded. They get blinded by all this other stuff and forget to see people as people. And I've been blessed just because of, you know, the ability to get past that because of my upbringing, because I've met so many different people from so many different backgrounds throughout my life. I could talk to people no matter where they were and in their lives. You're right about that. You know, Louise, I think I view it as people, because I, I often say that people are people at the end of the day, whether you're black, white, brown, female, male, straight, gay, people are people. And, you know, you and I both have a very unique view of it because we've been able to see what, let's just say, people who aren't in the business we are in see as stars or a celebrity or what have you. We're lucky enough to just see them as people because we see them in those people moments. And 
it's just, you know, we're lucky enough to be able to see that. And, and so when it comes to song, how does that relate to my career? I view songwriters as songwriters. You know, I remember the, one of the first times I went to Nashville. And this is when I was working at, um, maybe it was Warner. It was Warner. I started to go to Nashville a lot because I wanted to really learn the market. And, 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 and we had hired a guy there that I hired over from EMI named Ben Vaughn to run our Nashville operations in, at Warner. And I remember being very, very nervous on the first trip there. I was going to be there for probably a week. And Ben had set up all these meetings. And so I'm really nervous about it because, you know, in my mind, you know, Nashville is not going to be welcoming to, you know, one, someone not from the Nashville community, two, someone whose success to date had been in the R&B and hip hop space, and three, a black man, right? And so I couldn't have been so far away from the opposite once I got into it. Mm -hmm. And what I realized very quickly, thank God, was that I've been lucky enough to work with some great songwriters. And in Nashville, it's probably some of the greatest songwriters that ever lived. And songwriters are songwriters. And you just, I often say you, you know when someone has it, when they can, if they can help hold a conversation with a songwriter, right? Or, or an artist for that matter. And by the second meeting in, it was just me talking to songwriters. They weren't Nashville songwriters anymore. They were talking to me as a person who's worked with songwriters, not hip hop songwriters. Because the language is the same at the end of the day. Yeah. And, you know, and, and I also attribute some of that to how my upbringing, because I grew up in Denver, Colorado. Mm-hmm. So I grew up in, a, in, a, in an environment where, quite frankly, there wasn't a lot of people of color. You know what I'm saying? It wasn't even an FM, R&B radio station. So I was in some ways forced to listen to so many different types of music that were on the FM stations, whether it was rock, rock music then, which is now the classic rock songs, right? All of those songs were my childhood. Country music at the time, all of those songs were my childhood. R&B, all of those songs were my childhood. I saw the birth of hip hop. All of those songs were my childhood. So I had this melting pot of music to where, you know, I can, I can sit with Carol King and not just as the CEO of Sony Music Publishing, but as a fan mm-hmm. who knows the music and who cherishes the opportunity to represent those songs. So I think I sit in a very unique place, no matter what I look like. I just think because of my upbringing and my love for music and the creators of music, and then to run a company that's you know responsible for protecting the lives of creators, I think I sit in a very unique place. You do. And, you know, the other question I had is the position that you're in means that you have to answer to investors and it's about numbers. And how do you bridge those worlds together? Because at the end of the day, you do have to get in a board meeting and you do have to look at profits and numbers and losses and answer to to those people. Sure. I mean, listen, the beauty of our business is everybody loves music. Everybody loves music. So whether you're an investor or a fan or an employee at Sony Music Publishing, people love music. And so that's an advantage for us to a degree. But the real answer is that I believe if we stick to our focus of putting the songwriter first, helping songwriters build their career, if it's great for the songwriter, it's great for us, not the other way around. The money follows. And that's good business. 
Yeah. And investors like good business. Yeah. It's like planting a garden. You know, you got to You got to sow the right seeds and put the right conditions around it and know that it, it'll grow and give it enough time. And that goes back to having the right team. You know what I mean? Having the right team in place to, to help you do that. And listen, listen, there is a bottom line. And of course, it's a business. But I just believe if we do the right things by our songwriters, that's great business. Yeah. And, and that's that's the only place to come from. I want to ask you. So much of this is about people and all of the things that you had described, those moments in your history where somebody was there, you went to a show, you saw someone backstage, things happen. During this pandemic, a lot of that has been shut down. There aren't shows to go to. There aren't as many dinners to sit at. How has this last year plus affected that thing you do? Well, I mean, we just had to figure out another way to get it done. And you know, songwriters don't want to stop writing songs. You know, has it been challenging at times? Yes. But that's why we're here. And 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 to, to figure it out. Like I as I tell people, you know, you want to be in the solutions business, not the problems business. You know what I mean? And we have to figure it out. You know, I often when I was at Warner, I was speaking to a group of young executives, younger executives, and someone asked me a question of like, how do I deal with the hard days? No one ever asked me that question before. How do you deal with the hard days? And, and I was like, wow, I had to think about it for a second before I answered the question. I was like, well, you know, when you think about it, I don't really have a lot of hard days. Um, and when I do come across a day that's harder than most, those are the days I realize I'm actually being paid to do the job that I do. What I mean by that is most people who are in the entertainment industry, but I'll speak about music because that's the area that you're hiring is that they love what they do and it's fun. It's a lot of fun and it rarely feels like work. And when you reach those hard days and, and, and the pandemic is a lot of hard days rolled into one, rolled together rather, those are the days you actually get paid for. And you know, I often say nobody pays you for easy. You get paid for hard. And that's what the pandemic has been. It's been hard, but we got to work. The company had a great year and the company can only have a great year if the songwriters are having a great year. But I, I, you know, right when the pandemic started, well, soon after a quarantine began, I should say, is I had a couple of first thoughts. But one of those first thoughts were, how are songwriters going to survive? And Sony was thoughtful enough to institute a COVID relief fund of $100 million to help organizations, people around the world. I reached out to a couple of organizations, one being Sona, the other being the NSAI. That's killer. Music songwriter advocacy groups. Yeah. Great. And I, I said to them, I want to, you know, how can we help? We want to help songwriters. And they were like, oh my God. And we gave money to both of those organizations. And to date, we've given over $2 million to help songwriters in need during quarantine around the world. And, and over a million of that in the U.S. alone. And keep in mind, we're trying to help songwriters, not just Sony songwriters, songwriters. Mm. We care about it. So that's, listen, songwriters write songs. They're going to do that. But with the access to get those songs out into the marketplace, and it was slowed down for a while. Now it's up and running like with no problem. But there was a moment there where it was slowed down a bit and they still have to eat. You know, songwriters don't get a lot of the advances and things that artists get and whatnot. You know, they, songwriters do the most work and get paid last. You know what I mean? And that's something I agree with, but you know, to not have it, you know, access to get your songs out there. I just thought like, wow, they're going to be struggling and how can we help? 
and, and things are good now. Things are good. A lot better, I should say. That's wonderful. You were talking about songwriters getting paid less, but what were the changes that occurred with the MMA? And could you break that down a little bit? Well, there's a couple of results of the MMA. You know, the first is, and I think one of the biggest things that songwriters want to listen about is, is this, you know, basically $425 million in unmatched funds that have been released that will be distributed over time from the digital services. And that's, that's a result of the MMA. That's good news, you know? So over time, you know, that money will be paid out to songwriters. And that's a big part of the solution, you know, but there's other positive aspects of the MMA. And that is that, you know, all songwriters are subject to the same system and processes now, you know what I mean? And that's kind of what you were speaking about. And, you know, with the MLC, it, it demands, it requires transparency. So there's a, there's another layer of transparency now that will be available to songwriters and and, and it furthers accountability. And then those unmatched funds, you know, going forward, that, amount of money released to unmatched funds should be less and less and less because of the things that the MMA and the, and the MLC put in place to where that money will get into songwriters' hands a lot faster. But it's, a, it's a, it, things that, listen, there's a lot of work to do, a lot more work to do, but we are a long way from where we were. It's a work in progress. Yeah. I would have to say it's, I don't think it's moving fast enough in the right direction for a lot of songwriters. But I also have to say it is moving in the right direction. Always a good thing to be moving in the right direction, even if it's the speed is not what we'd like. Yeah. I wonder the changes that have occurred over probably the last 40 years mm-hmm. is that a lot of songwriters are also artists now. There is less of a landing place for songwriters who are just songwriters. There's there's so many songwriters, and then there's just a handful, it seems, of artists who are going to record somebody else's song. Mm-hmm. And how do songwriters survive and get around that? Do they become artists? Do they diversify? What do you suggest for that mathematical problem? It's interesting. I think there was a time where there was less and less artists. I don't think that's the case anymore. You know what I mean? When you see you know, thousands and thousands of songs being uploaded to streaming services every week, every day, actually, there's artists singing those songs or rapping those songs or playing to those songs. So I, I think there's an abundance of artists now. I think that what is small is that level of the amount of what you would call, what we would call superstar artists that all want to work on. And, and that's fine to want to work on those projects. But you have to remember that TLC was a group that nobody wanted to sign at some point. You know what I mean? That, you know, this artist was a new artist at one point. And I think what it is, you have... A lot of people chasing the same thing. And sometimes as music publishers, our job is to like say, well, wait, there's all these other things we can do. You know what I mean? You have all these on there's all these other artists we can get them to. Now, all of them aren't going to become superstars, um, but some of them might, right? And some of them may go, if a superstar is, you know, at the top level, one may hit mid-level, you know, some may hit, you know, the lower tier. But if we have a lot of songs and we spread them around to all of them collectively, a songwriter can have a good life. That makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. Well, you sound like a man who doesn't take no for an answer. And no sounds like it's fuel, even. You know, it's funny to hear you like, describe it that way back to me. But I, you know, I think that's the thing that I think with people coming into this business, can you, can you deal with the word no? Can you deal with failure? Because both are going to happen. And how you deal with that will determine your future in this business. 
in life, to be honest with you. I, I don't believe in no. I believe the glass is always half full to me. It's always half full to me. It can be a drop in the glass. We just recently had a situation, you know, I won't mention any names, but there was a, um, a legacy band here that was going to leave the company. And I found out about it and I called the manager, the person who was responsible for the state. And, you know, I said, why would you leave? I just got here. We're, you know, changing the culture here, rebuilding this company into something even greater than what it was. And he was like, I don't know if it works for me. And so I said, just give me a chance. Just give me a chance. And so he said, well, I already told the other company that that we would do it with them. You know what I mean? I said, you haven't signed anything. Give me a chance. And he was like, it's, it's a long story, but he was just like, you know, I always wanted to work with you. This is what he said to me. I always wanted to work with you. And so um, I said to him, you know, he says, let me talk it over with my siblings and I'll come back to you. He said, I'm going to do that because I feel the need to do that. He goes, but it's probably not going to work out. I said, what's my chances? He said, probably 1%. I said, I'll take those odds. Long story short, he resigned with the company. They resigned with us at Sony. And I literally just talked to him last week and he said, everything you said that you would do, you all have done. And he was just like, you're a different dude, Big John. That's what he said. Is he a different dude? He said, I told you you had a 1% chance and you said, I'll take those odds. And we resigned. He said, and I'm so happy we did. And that goes into, that's a kind of like a real life example of when you say, I don't take no for an answer. I don't really take no. And I don't believe things are impossible. I guess that's a better way to say it because sometimes the answer is no and no means no, right? But I just don't believe anything's impossible. You know, I often say someone's going to figure it out. It might as well be me. You know what I mean? That's fantastic. I love that. Hey, can you talk a bit about the City of Hope Award? Absolutely. Yeah. It was in 2018. Mm-hmm. That award. And one of the greatest moments of my life. And not the award. One of the greatest opportunities to, to do something meaningful to help the lives of others. And again, you know, City of Hope is a fantastic cancer and diabetes research center. Um, where they've saved so many lives, working every day to save even more. But even with that, raising over $6 million for this fantastic research center, I didn't do that alone. I called on my friends, Mm -hmm. going back to the spirit of collaboration. And when I called on them, they showed up. You know, Beyonce performed that night. Jay-Z presented me my award. It was a very emotional evening, I might add. And I'm not an emotional person. But it all welled up and came out of me that night because I've had an amazing career or I'm having an amazing career. And I don't look at myself that way. Right. I don't say wake up every morning. I have an amazing career. I don't I don't do that. But that was the one time. But I do know that I have achieved. But that night, a lot of people showed me what it meant to them. And it was very emotional to have that level of support from an industry of of colleagues because we're competitors, right? We're competitors. We compete. If you're a songwriter, you're trying to get your song on the album before this other songwriter gets on the album, whatever the case may be. But there there are those moments where people lay down their armor and they come together and it's just respect. And that was my version of that. It was very, very overwhelming. And, uh, and I'm happy that we were all, as an industry, 
able to come together to hopefully help save some more lives. That's beautiful. And the best kind of competition is really inspiration. You know, if, if someone outdoes you rather than resent it, of course you say, damn, I wish I got that. But just to be able to say, oh, the respect of that amazing work, I want to reach that. We need that. I mean, it would be fallow land to be in a world where there weren't people better than you to to reach up to that level. You know, how can I be as good as this person? Yeah. But then when you get to that level, too, even if you're on the same level, whatever, you can't like step on people, meaning there was a situation where we were it was a very competitive deal for a new songwriter artist. Mm -hmm. And I had a great relationship, developed a great relationship with the management. And it wasn't a deal that I was personally working on, but one of our ARs was working on it. So anyway, the manager said, hey, I think I really, really like Sony, but she has a, um, this particular artist had a little stronger connection with, with the A&R at another company, right? And that um, he was like, but I have a really strong relationship with the manager. He said, I could bring it to you. And I said, you know, he was telling me all the things that the other younger executive had did and how the connection was. And I said to him, I said, that's where she should be. And he said, we talking about, I said, that's where she should be. I said, listen, man, I'm not going to be the big executive to come and bully a young executive who's done the work. I said, that other young executive has done the work. Like, and the artist is connected to that. That's where the artist should be. And he was like, wow, man. He was like, man, you're different. And I was like, no, it's just fine. So I'm not going to step on a younger person's career just because, you know, some people may think they can. Like, I was like, he was telling me the whole story and I resonate with that story. Like she did the work. That's where the artist should be. So I, I'm really just trying to give, because a lot of people tell you um, when they speak about their career, they speak about it in what's worked out for them and how we did this right, how we did that right, how we did that right, and, that, and it worked. You know, very few people, at least when I'm listening to people speak, I want to hear what didn't work. I want to hear, like, you know, how you didn't win the trophy at the end of the day. Like, what happened in that? Because that I can actually learn from. You know, I often tell people I learned much more from my failures than I ever did from my successes. And those are the things that build the character. It's the failures, to be honest with yeah. you. Why did, why did it not work out? And that's the part you have to really, you got to do, you got to post mortem it. It can't just be as simple as it didn't work out. I'm going to get it next time. Why didn't it work out this time? And then I know it's going to work out next time because I'm going to correct that. You're a badass, Big John. <laughs> <laughs> Listen up, people. Take some good advice here. Character building. It's all about self-respect too, you know, what, what you can live with. I agree. You know, I'll tell you one last story when you talk about the journey. Um, when I left EMI and went to Warner, mm -hmm. I went to Denver for something and I'm riding around with a friend of mine who's not in the music business. He's living in Denver, Colorado. And he says to me, what's the difference between the job you're in now, the company you're at now and the company you left? It was just an honest question. Like, wow, that's a, you know, I'm thinking like, that's a good question. I said, well, I think I learned something about myself. And he said, what do you mean? I said, well, when I was at EMI, we were number one the entire time I was at EMI, never number two, always number one. I said, but the company I'm at now, we're not number one. I should say we built EMI to be number one. That's, that's a better way to say that. And 
now I'm at a company where not number one and, I, and, and I'm trying to build it to be number one. And he said, well, what'd you learn about my, he said, what'd you learn about yourself? I said, well, what I learned about myself is being number one is fantastic. Like it's one of the greatest feelings in the world, but not greater than the journey to number one. And he got it. You know what I mean? I said, and I'm on the journey again. I said, and, and I love the journey. And that was that. That's a great statement to close this with the journey. I, I really thank you for taking the time to talk to me. This has been such a great conversation and I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me, Louise. I really appreciate it. I want to thank my special guest, John Platt, for taking the time to talk with us and share his amazing stories. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a message or write us a review. You can follow us on Podbean, Apple Music, YouTube, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you stream. Come on, do it. On Song Chronicles, You'll hear the behind-the-scenes stories told by music makers and music industry insiders themselves. I'm your host and producer, Louise Goffin. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.